Thank you, team, for leading us in that reflection on the Lamb of God. That's our theme this morning, and just to set the setting for this, I want to read from the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Please stand as we read together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your voice of identification and approval of the Son of God has rung down throughout the ages through the Word of God. And we stand this morning to affirm that we trust and believe in Jesus Christ, your Son. And our Father, we pray that you would open your Word to us and to our hearts today, that you might be glorified. And as we gather at the Lord's table We pray that we'll have grateful hearts and understanding hearts. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. John the Baptist, not the writer of John's gospel, but John the Baptist and Jesus were both Miracle babies. John's mother, Elizabeth, was barren. John's parents were both in the priestly line. His father, Zachariah, was was a priest. They were a senior citizen couple, and Elizabeth was unable to have children. But God intervened and enabled her to conceive, and John was born. Jesus was born six months later. By a supernatural conception, the Holy Spirit invaded Mary's body, an unmarried and a virgin lady, and Jesus was conceived. John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were relatives, the scriptures say. In fact, we're told that when they were both pregnant, 
and Mary discovered she was pregnant, she went to visit Elizabeth and they shared their pregnancy stories and the wonderful things that were happening and they recognized that God's hand was upon both their children. It's possible that because the mothers were relatives that John and Jesus may have spent a little bit of time together as boys. That's only an assumption, but it's very possible. However, John and Jesus grew up in different environments. Jesus, as we know, grew up in his parents' home in Nazareth, a little out-of-the-way town. He worked with his father in carpentry and lived a very quiet lifestyle for the first 30 years. John grew up in his priestly parents' home, out quite out in the, in the countryside, and he later moved out and lived in seclusion. And the gospel writer Luke says, the child John grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So there's a 30-year silence about John's life. We know he was born and the 30 years of silence, very much the same as Jesus' life. They were both incognito in that sense. What was John doing? Well, he was waiting. He was waiting for his God-assigned mission. He understood that because his father had been told that. Uh, his father had been told by the angel, he will go before the Lord to turn people's hearts to the Lord, and he will prepare people for the Lord. That would have been explained to John. And he was waiting for that would, would begin. And one day, the strangely dressed person, this recluse that nobody was aware of, appeared along the Jordan River in Israel with this gripping message that we read about in Mark's Gospel, calling people to repentance and baptism as an outward sign of, of their repentance. John the Baptist knew who he was, and he knew what his mission was. He said, according to John's gospel, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. So he had begun his mission. God had moved upon him. And he was waiting now to find out who was the person, the coming one that he was preparing people for. And that was revealed to him, as we've read, in the baptism of Jesus. At the moment he baptized Jesus, when came out of the water, the voice of God uh, confirmed him, and John had been told, when the person that you see the Holy Spirit coming on like a dove, as a dove, that's the Messiah, that's the coming one. So we pick up the story in John's Gospel that was read for us at the beginning of the service, and you may want to have your finger in John's Gospel, the first chapter. So John immediately, as we read in verse 29, the next day, that is, the day after he had baptized him, John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he makes this announcement that this is the Messiah. And he describes him in rather strange language because we don't hear anything of the Lamb of God specifically, that is in word, in the Old Testament. We'll see that there are pictures of that. Where did he get his information from? Well, John said, he who told me about the one who was coming must have told John these, this message as well. He who sent me told me. But why did he use the terms the Lamb of God? Why not, here's the Messiah, here's the Son of God? It's very unique. 
Because John's the only one in the gospel accounts that uses the word the Lamb of God. Well, this was an intentional statement. It's about the mission of the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus had come not to be king and to set up his kingdom, but he had come to be a sacrificial offering. And that's so synonymous with lambs. And we have the benefit of the hindsight with the New Testament, of course. And so with this in mind, let's look at the divine announcement from the lips of, of John the Baptist about the person and mission of Jesus. When he says, behold, he's saying, look, there he is. So by faith, I invite us together this morning to look at the Lamb of God and see him as he really is as we prepare to remember his sacrificial death. And let's be challenged in a fresh way to follow the Lord with all our heart. So look at the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Think about that. Why did John identify Jesus as the Lamb? Well, as we've said, God had revealed many things to John in his seclusion before he was going public. That was his education in the, in the seclusion part. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And in John 1, 32 uh, to 34, he says, I bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It remained on him. I did not know him that is, that he was a Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John says this, and I have seen and a born witness that this is the Son of God. But then he says, he doesn't say, look, there's the Son of God. He says, look, there's the Lamb of God. Not just a lamb, but a definite article, the lamb of God. The one and only, the specific one, the unique one, as Jesus is described as the word of God. The real lamb. The lamb represents our approach to God, how we approach God. Now that's so foreign to us. Animals are not part of our religious life, our worship. They're so foreign to us approaching God, and it's difficult for us to grasp uh, the full intent of this. But animals were a normal concept for Israel because they were people, they were shepherds. They were people of sheep. They, David would talk about the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, we are the sheep of his pasture. And animal sacrifices were at the heart. They were the means. They were the qualifying thing that God's people would bring with them when they came to worship in the temple. And often it was a year-old lamb. The lamb also represents what God requires. An animal offering was required even in John's day because you remember early in, the, in Jesus' ministry in chapter 2 of, of John, he comes into the temple and he's upset because they're selling animals for sacrifice. They're selling lambs. It was still going on, the Levitical system. But an animal offering, as we understand from the scriptures, was temporary and only symbolic for sin. For the book of Hebrews talks about there is no offering that an animal can make that's the final one. Every year they keep making the same offerings. 
So John is announcing the Lamb. This is the real Lamb by whom we approach God. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. And Jesus could also have said, I am the Lamb of God. Not another religious way. John is saying, not another religious way, but the ultimate, now the way of approaching God. And we look at Jesus and declare that he is our way of approach to God. Not a religious way, not through someone else, but only through Jesus, the Lamb, the way, the truth, and the life, the one by whom we're the only, only way that we can come to God. No other way. The Lamb. And John leaves no uncertainty about the real identity of the Lamb because he says, look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. God had revealed to John that, of course, that Jesus was the Messiah and John testified that he was the Son of God. And now he's declaring that God's Lamb is actually God's Son in person. The one who was with God in the beginning, the Word, the one who was made flesh. And the Lamb of God is a theme in Scripture that we find, and it's, it's subtle, but it's there. Scripture teaches us that God's Lamb was planned in eternity past. Now let's think of this. God predetermined the sacrifice of his Son. The Holy One at his side, the one through whom all things were created, the Son of God, was at his side. And then he came into this world. On the day of Pentecost, Peter says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. And Peter then, when he's writing his own epistle later, says, You and I were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And so we can look back in faith and by faith, in eternity past, beyond the creation of the world. And we see the Lamb of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, reigning and ruling at the Father's side. And what's he doing? He's waiting for the time, the right time, when he would come to earth as the Lamb of God. Waiting to come to be your Lamb and my Lamb. Because the scriptures tell us he foreknew us before the foundation of the world. Which is something we can't fully grasp. But the Lamb of God was waiting. Now move into time and space in human history. In Abraham's day, and you'll recall that tremendous request that God put on Abraham, Father Abraham's Ears, and he said, Abraham, I want to take your, want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, and you take him up to the mountain, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. And Abraham said, okay, and they set out. They travel three days. And they have the wood. He had cut the wood for that burnt offering. And they carried the fire that they always kept. And they're walking along and Isaac, little Isaac is old enough to understand about sacrifices. And finally says, Dad, we've got the wood for the offering and we've got the fire, but where's the lamb? And what did Abraham say? My son, God will provide the lamb. That's the picture. God will provide a lamb. And then 
as we move through in the history of the early history of God's people, they are now two million plus and they're in Egypt, but they're in bondage. And God says, I'm going to free them. And so through the miracles the, that he had plagues that he brought on the, the Egyptians, he finally comes to the last one, the 10th one. And he says, we're going to defeat the gods of Egypt and the Pharaoh who's, who's looked upon as a god. And so he said, tonight I'm going to pass through the land and I'm going to take the life of every firstborn animal and every firstborn person. So whether that was a father or a mother or a little child, that was the judgment that was coming on Egypt. And then Moses said through, through God, take a lamb, kill it in the evening at twilight, take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts. The blood shall be a sign on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you, destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So if we look back in history, we see the shadow of the Lamb of God in the annual Passover sacrifices every year. They would take a lamb and relive in memory and gratitude what God had done for them. But year after year, in God's mind, it was in anticipation of the real Lamb of God that would finally be the last sacrifice that God would require. And then we look at the prophetic voice of Isaiah that passage that we are so familiar with when Isaiah writes that we have all, like sheep, we've gone astray. Uh, surely, let me begin at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he, this person, has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Peter states, elaborates, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we look back at the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, and we see this word portrayal of the Lamb of God taking our sins and taking God's judgment. And John announces that Jesus is God's Lamb in human form. And by doing that, he went on to define the mission of Jesus coming as the Lamb of God and how Jesus delivers us you and me from God's judgment. As he declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the mission. John says, when Jesus came into the world, when he announced him that the role, Jesus' role was the Lamb of God to deal with the sin of mankind, the sin. Here again, it's very specific. It's a definite article. It's the sin, not Plural, but the sin. That word means to miss the mark or fail to reach the goal. What's the mark? The mark is beyond anything that we could ever reach. It's, it's God's perfection, God's holiness. And he 
Jesus came to take away our missing that mark of God's holiness. What is the sin of the world? It's a sin that came into the world through Adam. By one man, sin entered into the world and so death passed upon all. That's the sin that Jesus came to deal with. The going our own way like sheep. The rebellion towards God that's embedded in our human nature and it's in our natural spiritual DNA. You have it and I have it. If we left to ourselves, we will go our own way and that way will be in rebellion against God. It will take us in the opposite direction. The sin of the world is the debt of our failure. The whole debt of our rebellion before God. The sin. We're 100% sinful beings before God. You may not feel like that. You may not want to admit that. But the scriptures tell us that we are 100% sinful beings before God because we've missed his mark. There's no difference, the scriptures say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the mark. I don't think any of us would pretend that we've reached the mark of God's glory. And that's the sin of the world. None of us, by whatever we might do, can ever possibly meet that mark. It's that sin that results in spiritual death or separation from God. That's the legal penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. And Jesus' mission was to deal with the totality of the sin of the human race. Every person who's ever lived, every person who will ever live. And John says that Jesus takes away this corporate sin of mankind. He takes away. It's, it's active in the present tense. And Jesus was in the process of taking sin away then. It's the idea of carrying it away. Picking it up and carrying it away. Taking it out of the way so that it's no longer between God and us. So there's nothing we can do. We cannot pick it up and take it away. So how did Jesus carry away the sin of Adam that's infected the human race? How did he do that? To take that out which stands like a wall between us and our holy God. Well, let's look at the Lamb of God on the way to the cross. And we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus is in the Garden, we know that He's going to be in prayer. Now, the word Gethsemane means oil press. Oil press, olive oil press. In Jesus' day, Gethsemane was a place where the last possible oil out of the olives were were crushed out. They had already trampled them to get as much as they could. Then they would go into the Gethsemane and they would put huge stone slabs on the pulp that was left and squeeze out any remaining oil that was in the pulp. And that's a wonderful picture here for as Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, we read, he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. When he came to the place, which is in Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. And 
Jesus prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Why? Because the weight of what he was facing was pressing upon him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down from the ground. And here was the Lamb of God on his way to be crucified as a lamb and facing the weight, the awful weight of what weighted him as he would go to the cross to take away the sin of the world, your sin and my sin. And then see the lamb now on the cross. Jesus voluntarily accepted responsibility for your sin and my sin. He willingly took on the guilt that a whole that you and I have before God on our by ourselves. He chose to lay down his life in sacrifice. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down that I may take it up again. He chose to take our sins on himself on the cross. And the sin and guilt of the whole human race was placed on Jesus, the sinless one. The scriptures say God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took all the legal consequences of our sin. They were all transferred to Jesus. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it was charged to Jesus, imputed to Jesus. It did not make Jesus sinful. Jesus is taking on the, the, the guilt, our debt. He's not taking on our sin in his person so that he becomes a sinful being. He did take on the curse of, of the law, but he did not become sinful. But he stood in the place of sinners and he took our place as a substitute before God. And Jesus endured the judgment of God on, on, on sin and on sinners. And on those three hours of darkness, when right at midday, when it's the brightest, there was suddenly a blackout around Jerusalem for three solid hours. And during those three hours, he was completing that work that he had come to do, taking away the sin of the world, taking on our guilt, our sin, and then answering for it and bearing God's judgment. And in those hours, you remember, he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced that separation from God on our behalf. And then it was completed. And we read he was offered a drink. And then when he had touched the drink to his lips, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. We look at Jesus and we see him as God's sacrifice for our salvation. So Paul writes, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. The way has been opened. God has delivered us and protects us from his judgment upon sinners. He no longer passes upon us, but passes over us through Christ. And Jesus took away that sin that stood between God and us and paid the price. So Jesus is the way of reconciliation. He stands as the mediator. And his mission on earth was to come as our lamb. And the scriptures say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. You see, it's not automatic. We say, well, if Jesus died for the sins of the world, then we're all good. We don't have to worry about anything. No, the scriptures go on to say we have to take ownership of that. We have a responsibility. We need to call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, we need to declare spiritual bankruptcy and say to God, I am a sinner. I cannot possibly do anything for my sin. But I claim Jesus. That's spiritual bankruptcy. Have you declared it? In, in so many words. That's the place we start. Is by recognizing that we are totally. Unable to do anything. That will answer for the sin of the world. For our sinfulness. Jesus mission on earth as a lamb of God continues in heaven. It's not over. Romans tells us. Who is he who condemns us? So do you feel condemned sometimes? Yes, we do. So Paul writes, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The work of the Lamb of God goes on, interceding for us. So picture Jesus in heaven today, representing you and praying for you. And then... Ask yourself the question, how does my life show my gratitude? Do I allow things in my life? What is in my heart? What is in my life, my behavior, that's out of place before the Lamb of God? So behold the Lamb of God worshiping, uh, who is worshipped in heaven. And the book of Revelations, which we just want to finish with, we find that he's still the Lamb of God. In fact, throughout the Revelation, you find him referred to as the Lamb of God. But in chapter 5 of the Revelation, John describes uh, Jesus in his vision as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written on front, within and the back, sealed with seven seals. And so no one seems to be there to open it. And then verse 5 says, One of the elders said to me, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And behold, the throne And the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's Jesus. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the the lamb, of the angel. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and nation. And then John looks, and he heard the voice of many people saying this, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And that's what we're here to do today. In our spirit, to fall down and worship 
the lamb who has been slain. But victoriously, the lamb who reigns in heaven. And we'll consider that on Sunday. Behold the Lord. But today, behold the lamb. And what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are undeserving. But you chose because you so love the world to give your one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. And we accept that today and thank you for being our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. He is our Redeemer. Let's sing that together.